So let's let's stay a little bit with, with this. Um, with, with these questions that I've just kind of thrown out there. Um, so again, rather than arguing about which definition or which setting of the bar kind of captures um, the, quote, real stream entry according to the historical Buddha, in inverted commas, um, we could ask why one wants the bar uh, for stream entry lower or higher. And actually wrapped up in that, um, a a corollary of this might for some people be uh, why or what is going on for you psychologically in this um, kind of um, emphasizing on of the historical Buddha's kind of take. What assumptions are, are are operating when we do that? When we go to the books and we look, and, and, and we look there and, and we kind of engage in this kind of um, arguing and, and kind of nitpicking about the text. Why prioritize? And what are the consequences of prioritizing that? I've realized for some that's going to sound like a very odd and dangerous and kind of radical uh, questioning. But if you can, if you can actually open it up as a question, what without without any implication of a it should be this way or it should be that way or just it's more like. Really, why? What's what's actually going on for you in your in the psyche with all that? And then, as I as I um, uh, threw out as well, one of the questions: What kind of a person is made if um, in in attaining a stream entry that say is is going with the flow? Um, what kind of person is made in attaining? Uh, you know, a much higher bar. Um, say this thing about recognizing everything, absolutely everything, including the elements, including the time, including the now, including awareness. Um, all of it, all phenomena, empty. Um, don't know actually, um, but it, it's more like turning the question around and looking at the result of decisions rather than uh, what's looking backwards, so to speak, for why we would choose this or that. I suppose that if if the bar was set higher, this kind of radical emptiness of everything, that person in in their journey to that would have um, uh, would would have almost inevitably had lots of um, uh, quite interesting and unusual experiences and insights and um, pretty large range. Um, and uh, of experiences, insights, perspectives, and um, and perhaps be shaped by the you know really complex and challenging journey to that kind of level of realization, and also shaped by the kind of dedication, focus, and choices it it take, t- takes took to get there. That's it. I don't know. It you know. Uh, I don't know if you ever met anyone who um, declares themselves um, an arahant or finally, uh, you know, fully enlightened. It's finished for me. I've done it all. Um, they're, I don't know, but uh, they're they're often not that. Um, I don't know what to say. Not that attractive as human beings, and not that impressive. 
um, when one hangs hangs around them a little bit and say, well, actually, there's quite a lot missing here. Um, as one of my um, one of my teachers in the states said, I don't know if she was had anyone particular in mind when she said it. It was just in mid flow in a Dharma talk. She she was talking about something. She said, if that's awakening, you can keep it. Um, now, this business about I've finished, someone saying I've finished, I'm, I've reached full arahantship, there's nothing further, etc. I am an arahant, I'm fully enlightened. I'm, I'm interested in that, um, or the problems with such a claim, not so much because, um, because of the kind of view like, oh, someone who's fully enlightened wouldn't wouldn't be arrogant like that, or um, or they'd be humble, or or something, or uh, I'm. That doesn't quite square with the Pali Canon either, actually, um, if you know the lion's roar of the Arahant. But, um, but um, actually, for, for another reason, this kind of I've done it, it's finished um, view does not allow uh, the kind of open-endedness that to me is much more interesting and much more soulful and much more fruitful, really. Um, another aspect of this is... Um, I haven't, I haven't mentioned it so far, is um, one could look in all this questioning of what, you know, what is a stream entra at the ethics of a so-called stream entra as an indicator or a, a necessary and basic qualification for any kind of awakening. It's somewhere in the Pali Canon, I can't remember where, where the Buddha actually, uh, I think, um, points to that. Uh, or so- somewhere in, in the Pali Canon, um, as, as ethics, as a, a, a stream entry can't kind of um, go, go against uh, sila, ethics. But that too is, is, is a problem, um, uh, or rather in that area, we, we also tend to be in the area of ethics, we tend to be blinkered by um, whatever is the... Um, the normal ethical view of our time, um, of our society, and or of the subculture we move in. So, you know, I mean, you know, uh, some of you will know that my concern with um, climate change, etc., and flying. Um, but it's, it's tricky, you know. When I, I sometimes wonder. It's like. Uh, You know, a stance of uh, thinking about the ethics of climate change and thinking about the ethics of carbon use, individual carbon use. And sort of scientists calculate, you know, how much individual carbon can each, if we shared it out equally among the human beings of the earth, how much carbon is each person sort of, uh, what's their individual carbon allowance if it was just equally shared? And that's even kind of disregarding. Um, you know, the past and history and cultures and whatnot and the kind of excessive use of, of modern Western cultures and people in modern Western cultures. Just, just from now on, like, what would you each be entitled to? And uh, just a couple of transatlantic flights a year would um, easily exceed my um, my quota as a, as a sort of human being entitled to uh, what anyone else is entitled to. Um, so how am I going to square that if I'm sitting across from someone um, how am I going to persuade them that I'm entitled to more carbon and so it's okay for me to 
do this flying um, and yeah you know uh, sorry that you can't or uh, it's better for me to have it than you to have it um, what's you know how, how do I how do I justify that uh, exceeding of my fair share of personal um, carbon dioxide emissions um, <clears throat> Something like that, as an ethical, is strange and it's uncomfortable uh, to a lot of people. Um, in a few years, it might be uh, widely regarded as as a kind of that's just a, a basic, adequate ethical consideration. It's like that just maybe become it's just how human beings think. It's like you know, if you go you go to a party and you eat all the cake. You're living on a desert island and you get to shit everywhere and and uh, it's like, how do you justify that? Um, in a few years, or in some years, it, it may be that that's just regarded as kind of that's just adequate, basic, normal, ethical behavior to not take more than your fair share of carbon, um, not to not to exceed that, rather than uh, what it might sound right now a way of thinking is really kind of. Um, strange, uh, especially if one tries to convince other people that they should think that way and they think you're just obnoxious. Back off. Um, actually, I, I read the other day that um, in the uh, new set of interview questions that they ask um, candidates for, uh, undergraduate candidates, I think, for in Oxford and Cambridge universities in England, that's actually one of the questions. Uh, something like, well, we know that flying is excessive carbon emissions and that causes dangerous climate change will affect people how can you just justify flying um you know is it if you know that the plane will fly anyway as people say oh, i know it's going to fly anyway um whether i get on it or not so it doesn't really matter is that an, is that uh, a valid ethical argument and the person has got sort of you know a few minutes to say something um some kind of intelligent moral argument there so that's interesting um, so uh, that's kind of you know Oxford and Cambridge. If you if you know it, kind of really f- fusty mainstream <laughs> mainstream universities. Uh, so real sort of um, I don't know what to call it, but uh, you get the picture. So it it may be finding its way in um, as something uh, that just becomes kind of normal. Um, you know. Ending slavery uh, again it's, it seems like an outrageous proposition, but um, eventually it becomes like uh, well there is still slavery well eventually it becomes just of course of course it's just a basic ethical thing it's like you don't own slaves you don't treat human beings like that um, at the time during the abolition movement of course it was hotly debated and um, and people regarded um, you know if you set free a slave in in, in some places you were breaking the law. Or campaigning to abolish slavery, or campaigning or working against Nazism, or es- to establish female suffrage and the, the vote. Um, retrospectively, that's regard all that actions are regarded as brave and um, ethically correct, um, or just a kind of responsibilities. But at the time, they were really. Um, uh, it was not obvious to a lot of people. Um, and and some people actually regard them as unethical. So people are going to prison now, um, being sent to prison for um, civil disobedience of different kinds in relation to climate, in relation to environment, in relation to all kinds of things. 
and and they are viewed by the different state or, or states or whatever as as engaging in unethical behavior so our views of what's ethical and what's not are are you know really influenced by the contemporary culture that we live in and and move in so ethics has something to do with awakening but what exactly so a person may simply be a kind of a conformist ethically um rather than someone who considers their ethical choices deeply who questions deeply who wrestles with with these difficult questions especially difficult now in the in in the time of globalization where our our effects we we actually n- know and can see and measure uh or rather, we, we know and we're aware of uh, the, the effects, our individual effects, on, on all parts of the globe and people and animals and uh, plant life all over the globe. Now, so it becomes much more, much more difficult, these questions, these ethical questions. Um, so a person may simply be a kind of ethical conformist rather than, rather than as someone who considers carefully their ethical choices and deep considers them deeply and questions them deeply, wrestles with these questions, holds themselves to high high ethical standards or um, higher than the norm. So what should the requirement be um, of regarding ethical uh, conformism for a stream entry? Is it, is it just a stream entry, just you adopt the Buddha's precepts? Um, which and is that adoption of the Buddhist precepts? Is it just another form of ethical conformism? I'm just kind of oh, that's what's given to me by the tradition. That's what I do, and I don't question. Uh, you know, there there are some stuff in the Buddhist tradition that we a lot of people these days are questioning the ethics of. So, for example, the ordination of women. I've stayed at monasteries where. Uh, they weren't recycling, and I asked about it. It's like, how come you don't recycle this plastic and and all this stuff and paper and and uh, and the answer I got was, this this is just samsara. Who cares? Who cares what happens in samsara? We're 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 on our way out. It's, uh, Theravada monastery. Um, again, it's that ethical. It's not breaking the Buddha's um, five precepts or in a certain interpretation of the five precepts. There's, there's a strict conformity to the, the monk's rules there. It doesn't say anything about recycling. And and then when you get into the five precepts, um, as I'm sure you're aware, you need to talk about what exactly does the third per, third precept mean? Um, what exactly does the fifth precept mean <coughs> around sexual behavior, around <coughs> substance, some you know, alcoholic substances, drugs, etc.? The, interp- the the range of interpretations here um, in just in the insight meditation world is actually is actually really large, you know. <clears throat> so how if we're talking about we realize ethics must have something to do with awakening, and as I said somewhere or other uh, in the Pali Canon it it says it makes that connection with stream entry <clears throat> and uh, keeping ethics. But what exactly? What is the relationship with ethics, and what ethics? And what kind of a relationship is it? So, when we consider awakening, I mean, wrapped up in in much of what I've been saying is um, 
awakening, liberation, enlightenment, whatever we want to call it, is is a concept and a vision or an image. Excuse me. Set within the context of a dharma, and in our case, Buddha dharma, but it could be a Hindu dharma or something. Awakening is a concept and a, and a vision or an image set within the context of a dharma, a tradition, in other words. It's set within a vision and an idea of tradition. So again, if I, if I um, ask my mum, what does awakening mean to you? What does liberation, what does enlightenment, it doesn't mean anything at all. She's not remotely involved in any tradition that, 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 uh, that uses any words remotely like that. So it just means nothing. It's 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 a concept set within a tradition. <clears throat> when we talk about traditions and our, our sense of the tradition, um, you know, some modern philosophical think, thinking. I'm, I'm I'm thinking now of um, Nietzsche, but also of uh, Michel Foucault. You know, looked at what, what's called genealogy. It's it's not quite history, but it's like what what are all the different elements and sort of fracturings and um, strange combinations and strange outer influxes um, that that come in to form a whole stream or current of um, thinking or practice in uh, you know through historical time and there's this critique there starting with Nietzsche of the fantasy of origins uh, in other words it was something really pure at the beginning and better then um, and there's also the fa- fancy of a kind of single trajectory this is the pure tradition um, th- this th- these kind of fancies in the in the poor sense um, that this kind of beliefs in in these ideas of the fantasies of origins the fantasies of kind of single pure trajectory that could be somehow found um, and that constitutes the the tradition of Buddha Dharma or whatever. Um, sometimes people also wrapped up with the fancy of origins or similar to it um, want to argue that the the Buddha uh, sort of was in some way radically independent of his time and everything he taught um, was kind of boldly new and original. It was just a sort of appearance of this completely new. Um, way of thinking about practice um, in in the human realm, um, but uh, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, let's say general relativity, which involves a theory of gravity, um, very different from the previous theory, which is Newton's theory of gravity, radically different in a lot of ways, and at the same time. Um, borrows uh, and stands on and uses as a basis and retains um, a lot of what was involved in um, in Newton's theory of, of gravity and Newton's whole kind of scientific system. So <coughs> revolutions, whether they're spiritual or philosophical or um, scientific or or whatever, um, they. Certain things have changed, but certain things just just carry on un, uninterrupted. Are still used as foundations, are as I said retained as uh, elements of the new view, and some are are uh, changed. And the same the same with the, with the Buddha. Um, the, the Buddha picked up, found himself in in a certain culture, in a certain country, in a certain historical cultural context. 
um, rich with different uh, spiritual views and philosophical views and cosmological views, and um, and took a lot of that and retained, changed some of it and retained a lot of it. Um, so the Buddhist tradition doesn't start with the with the Buddha, is is my point here. When we say tradition, it's like it's very easy to kind of get into a kind of um, idealistic thinking of what what a tradition is. It's this kind of there's a pure tradition, and we can find it somehow. And it started with the Buddha, and that was the pure tradition. And maybe it's been uh, you know subject to other things, but it started as something pure. It already started as a tra- there was already tradition which the Buddha traditions plural which the Buddha picked up on. And that's part of the Buddhist tradition, is already an influx um, of that time and that place, those cultures, etc., and that, those ways of thinking and worldviews and um, all of it. Um, the reason I'm saying this is, even more so in the modern West, um, we bring inevitably, and the Dharma reaches here in, you know, sometime in the 20th century and kind of in different waves. And um, as modern Westerners, we bring our whole set of assumptions, interpretations, needs, dispositions, and kind of errors, really, or or, uh, changes of direction um, to what we, quote, receive of the Dharma, which, as I said, was already a kind of multiplicity of different traditions, and, and that's definitely the case. It's like it's a mishmash uh, for us. It's a mishmash of, um, you know, Theravadan traditions and a bit of Zen and a bit of Tibetan and a bit of Advaita and a bit of... Um, and and all, a lot of um, Western worldview. We can't help that. Um, but what we, even if we could kind of isolate what we receive from what we bring to what we're receiving, which is impossible, but even if we could, what we receive was already plural, and the result of 2,500 years of previous kind of uh, genealogical development and all these fractures and misinterpretations and contradictions and influxes from different cultures, etc. So I've Pretty sure I've said this in a talk somewhere or other, but um, when when Buddhism moved, when Buddhism was brought to China, it was rejected at first um, by Chinese the Chinese by the Chinese culture um, outright. It, it made no impact whatsoever, um, and and then later it was accepted. Um, a second sort of uh, advance was accepted, but actually accepted only some of its elements. So Chinese Buddhism is very very different than Pali Canon Buddhism. Um, <coughs> or at least certainly the way it evolved. Um, But it only accepted some of its elements, some of its strands, and some of its foundational concepts. And it mixed them with Taoism and Confucianism and and basically the Chinese cultural um, disposition and sensibilities. Um, So the Chinese, um, as a culture, had a kind of abhorrence of any, anything transcendent. <clears throat> it was a very this world, um, tangible kind of emphasis, very different from the Indian, uh, the Indian sort of thrust or, or what was quite popular in Indian spiritual circles, Indian philosophies, and I, I would say the Pali Canon, this kind of transcendent thrust. 
Um, so that was very, very different um, to the Chinese sensibility and worldview. And they basically utterly rejected the transcendent thrust of, um, of Pali Canon Buddhism. They just shaved it off. Um, they related to that, they rejected the teachings of rebirth, or it's very, very much downplayed, um, partly because the Chinese culture really emphasized and placed a lot of importance on um, the ancestors, one's personal, personal, one's personal family ancestors, and praying to them and respecting them and honoring them. You can see that if you have many kind of infinite rebirths, who your ancestors are end up just being everyone, as, as the Tibetans teach. And your own individual ancestors kind of, uh, it just gets lost in the sea of um, an infinite uh, amount, actually an in infinite to the power of infinite amount of ancestors. So when the so-called Dharma meets a new culture, there's all kinds of tearings away, um, influxes, um, reinterpretations, um, as I said, bringing needs, dispositions, um, assumptions to whatever is, is received and, and changing it. And the same is true of the West. Inevitably, it's part of what goes on. It's part of what must go on. It's unavoidable. We cannot, you and I cannot step out of our own <coughs> cultural um, Weltanschauung, worldview, self-sense, etc. Way we feel existence, sensibilities. You know, we cannot step outside. You can't step outside of your time in history, really, um, and kind of receive the, the Buddhism in some kind of pure way. So we bring to it. Um, all kinds of things, some of which we're conscious of, and a lot of it we're not even conscious of exactly what we're bringing <clears throat> in terms of need, belief, disposition, assumption, interpretation, emphasis. So again, the, the modern West, to my view, is, is I'd say... <laughs> It's characterized by complexity and, and plurality, but it's also maybe the dominant, the most dominant uh, worldview is, is again a very non-transcendent <coughs> view. We believe a lot of the time that this is it, and any kind of talk of something um, transcendent in some way is uh, not popular in the dominant culture. Let's, let's put, put it that. And so that that shapes a lot of the, the flavor of the Dharma that then takes root in the West and how and, and what we keep and what we reject, etc., and what we emphasize. So this is it. This is it is quite uh, is, is, is a sense that um, is quite dominant in Western culture. This is it. This is it. There's nothing more than this. Um, there are no other dimensions, etc. Uh, there's nothing transcendent or unfabricated would be, you know, baffling, baffling concept. And so that this is it also tends to um, find its way into the kind of colors and emphases and teachings that uh, of, of the kind of Buddhisms that we <coughs> that we that tend to uh, proliferate and and be popular. So I'm saying this not just for an abstract historical reason, but making these points about tradition. And so awakening is rooted in a tradition. And tradition means what? What is a tradition? What's involved in our sense of a tradition? 
and can we kind of be a little more realistic about, or a little more wise at least, in, in what actually in, is involved in, in a tradition? Because when we see all this about the uh, dependence on the culture and the, the breadth and the complexity and the plurality of what, what, tradition, what a tradition is or encompasses, as kind of, any tradition is a multi-tradition and uh, all, full of all kinds of tangents and contradictions and uh, borrowings and influxes, as I said, and shavings off and... Um, then, then an awakening is rooted in tradition. And so what does awakening mean? I had this question, what is awakening? What does awakening mean? What does that word mean? People in the tradition talk about it. When you actually realize what, what's involved in tradition, so to speak, then what does awakening mean might actually become what can awakening mean? What can awakening mean? as if there isn't one singular version of it. And because we're actually in a moment of creation in, in the modern West, as the Dharma comes into the West, and, and, and there's this kind of mixing of everything that modern, we as modern Westerners bring to it, intellectually and aesthetically and uh, all kinds of ways. Um... What does awakening mean might become what can awakening mean. <clears throat> and even more than that, as I said, you know, one could say that modern, <clears throat> if you like, modern Western culture, let's say, um, but maybe modern global culture, um, is for some people is characterized as postmodern in the sense that um, it's not even that there's one dominant view of uh, even this kind of non-transcendent view. It's actually we're characterized by postmodern, which is characterized by plurality and and an and a utter kind of diversity of views and worldviews and um, <clears throat> senses of reality even. So the whole question around awakening might might move them from what does um, what does uh, what what is awakening, what does awakening mean might move to or open up to what can awakening mean? What can it mean? So it's a much more open question. And, and even beyond that, we might look into, as, as related to what I uh, said earlier about coming at the question um, from what it results in. So what does awakening means X? What does such a view or such an opinion or such a way of uh, conceiving of it, what does that result in? What does this view of awakening result in? What does that view of awakening result in? What does the third view of awakening result in? Do you understand? It's, it's, it's coming at the question from, from the other end, saying, what, what does it result in? What Again, what do I want? Where do I want to go? <clears throat> so, Again, having said all this, and and um, <clears throat> not arguing on any kind of grounds of historical accuracy, uh, though I could, I could, but not just as I said, it's not that, uh, for a number of different reasons. I think you can probably uh, grasp by now, not that interesting or fruitful 
seems a little silly to me. So not arguing on the ground of historical accuracy, though we could, uh, I could, and not trying to persuade you. Um, I could outline uh, a trajectory, let's call it a trajectory, that is or might be a central strand, this trajectory, in one notion of awakening, um, or it might be, if you like, a direction of, um, let's say, development or better exploration or discovery that leads to what? Uh, freedom, freedoms, plural. Um, that's certainly interesting in terms of what uh, the, the, the sense of self and world that it allows, the senses of self and world that opens up beauty. So I could outline a trajectory that is a central strand, might be a central strand in a kind of notion of awakening as a kind of direction or exploration, discovery that opens up freedoms, um, interesting uh, senses of things, uh, and beauties and and more. Um, One strand, this trajectory, among others which... uh, yeah, would include um, psychological and emotional awareness and skill, uh, relational awareness and skill, um, development of the heart with with uh, kindness and compassion and generosity and all that. <clears throat> Some of which will come out of out of this more central strand. But one could again, uh, or I, I could again, not claiming historical accuracy, though that would be possible, not um, trying to persuade you, but just, just putting out something, uh, a possibility of conceiving, um, taking as fundamental, as funda- central to this exploration, the exploration of fabrication, uh, the fabrication of perception, of all perception of any phenomena. So that means not just the self-sense, but also any any object sense, inner and outer, and time and space and all of it. Um, exploring fabrication through playing with different ways of looking. And that whole uh, direction and thrust of investigation, of meditative exploration. And in so doing, one if one just stayed with it and learned to play with it and the, the richness and the, the depth and beauty and subtlety of it all and, and the joy of that of that play and exploration, one would come to a level, uh, at, you know, one kind of simple level that one would come to is seeing, oh, I get, I get this experience of the self as just a process of the psychophysical aggregates, the skandhas in time. And there would be a certain seeing of a certain level of relative um, lessening of fabrication. But one could go beyond that into, uh, one will go beyond that if one kept up this, didn't stop there, and kept exploring this uh, this direction of fabrication and unfabrication, playing with different ways of looking, see how, seeing how much they fabricate and in what ways and what they fabricate and how they unfabricate. One would open up to all kinds of um, perceptions of one oneness, different kinds of oneness, and the self being one with that, I am love, I am awareness, etc., and all, all, all these. One would eventually, in this direction, um, open to the unfabricated, and one would also realize that all dharmas are empty, 
ourselves, um, any uh, constituent of the self, any element of existence, any object, any subject, time, past, present, future, awareness, consciousness, space, all dharmas are empty. One would realize that in this ongoing uh, uh, deepening of exploration. And then one would realize, as I said, making the connection earlier, that all self-views are not to be clung to. Any self-view, because you realize the radical, thorough emptiness of absolutely everything, all self-views collapse as uh, objects of clinging to, of believing in, as being real. This is, this is what the self is. <clears throat> one can go even deeper, and I've outlined this in quite a lot of detail elsewhere, um, and to see that even this notion of fabrication, which was the very notion that we started with, you start to see, oh, that's empty too. Because if time is empty and the things that are fabricated and fabricating, the elements that are fabricated and the elements that are fabricating, they're also empty. And the time in which fabrication happens is empty. The whole notion of fabrication starts to crumble as a real notion. And then the whole notion, because the fabricated has, uh, fabrication is empty, um, the whole notion of the unfabricated um, is recognized to be empty in a, whole, in a whole other way, a whole other level. And the whole duality between the unfabricated as something holy uh, and the fabricated as something unholy, um, that collapses. Radical non-duality between the unfabricated and the fabricated. And as one goes even more, one sees there's no, there's no, because of the radical emptiness of all things, there's no kind of singular way things are. There's no way of looking that one can kind of <coughs> snuggle into and adopt and hold and say, this, this way of looking reveals how things are, the real way things are, what is. There's no way of looking that reveals a final truth of how things are. And with that, one begins slowly to realize it's almost like oh, that also relativizes all, diff- all conceptual frameworks. It doesn't mean that any conceptual framework is as good as any other and I can believe we're all bananas or whatever. Um, I mean actual bananas like fruits. I don't mean that we're all crazy. That we're, you know, or just some, some that's as good as believing uh, the sort of more conventional view of reality. But th- that's, it's more a subtle point that no conceptual framework will will reveal the ultimate truth of things, and no way of looking will reveal this is how things are. This is finally this is the take on things. And then on this trajectory, one one begins to open up to that a really radical sense of possibility, and one sees even deeper not just the participation in perception, which was clearer before with this business about fabrication and ways of looking. But actually, the p- participation in the whole notions of truth, and also in the notions of what awakening are, is we participate, or we can participate. We do participate. There's a whole part- participatory view that becomes viable as a conceptual framework. So one could, out, I could have outlined very briefly a trajectory that might be a central strand, as I said, of one possible notion of what awakening might be, among other strands involved in it that seem very important to me, like psychological, emotional, relational awareness, skill, <coughs> development of the heart, generosity and love, 
generosity and love I would expect to come out of the metta as well, by the way. Um, now, we could say, okay, so where, where do we place the stages in that? Um, but again, I would just say, why, why is that important? What's behind the question? What's driving uh, the necessity to place stages there or map it on this or that or whatever? So, uh, in that conceptual framework, in, in say in my conceptual framework, uh, it's maybe how I tend to think at the moment. Awakening includes um, ending the inner critic. Certainly, getting freeing oneself from that. It includes more broadly healing our psychological wounds. You know. Um, to a significant, really, you know, significant extent. <clears throat> um, it includes, you know, being able to flow with the stream of life. It includes the direction of eradicating the kilesas and moving in that direction. Um, some of these conceptions, as I've pointed out uh, before, um, they might be quite popular, but um, wh- when you kind of probe them a little bit or explore them in actual life, it, it you begin to ask questions, what does it actually mean to go with the flow? What does it actually mean to really eradicate those kilesas of greed, aversion, and delusion, um, as I've um, talked about? And something in those notions begins to kind of lack a little coherence. Nevertheless, they they can be helpful as sort of um, uh, uh, elements to include in this sort of larger direction, or larger conceptual framework. It includes um, the transformative uh, experiences and perceptions and understandings of onenesses of different kinds, of uh, anatta, no self, not self, um, all that. But for me, I want to say something further, further because um, it also includes this radical emptiness of all phenomena uh, and this non-duality that I was talking about earlier. But um, for me, awakening, though it includes all these experiences, insights, and directions, <coughs> um, as much as they are not kind of ultimately incoherent, um, is beyond all that too. It includes and involves um, something more. Uh, it includes even the seeing that awakening too is empty. Awakening too is empty. And that many Mahayana texts are pointing to the emptiness of awakening, the non-duality of nirvana and samsara, etc. But this emptiness of awakening doesn't mean that we throw away, for me, doesn't mean that we then throw away, that we should throw away the, the concept of awakening, the notion, the goal, the vision. It doesn't devalue it. It doesn't say it's empty, therefore it's a lie. Therefore it's, uh, it's just a con or it's rubbish. Or as someone once said to me, uh, we're, all, uh, they say? we're all stuck anyway. We're all schmucks or, or something like that. Uh, in the end, they were talking about a certain spiritual teacher that they felt uh, disillusioned about. And then they'd just gone to this, oh, we're all the same. There's, no, there's nothing possible. It's not, to me, the emptiness of awakening is not saying that. And that's not what it opens that realization. 
But awakening is empty, and in several different ways. And one of the ways it's empty is that um, if it involves what I was tracing in that outline of a trajectory, awakening will also open all kinds of doors, all kinds of possibilities in many different directions. That whole movement of awakening will open all kinds of doors, gates, possibilities, and, and, and many different directions, manifold, and perhaps even infinite possibilities for ways of looking and ways of conceiving. And, and it will open them for actual use in life, like to be engaged, to be lived, to be practiced, knowing they are all empty, and at the same time viable, workable, practicable. This is, this is part of what awakening does in, in this vision of awakening. And because there's infinite possibility there, there's not an end to this opening. There's not an end to this movement of opening. It's open-ended. <clears throat> Just to end, you know... Uh, so that's a a, possi- a possible trajectory. You know, I offer it as a possibility again, without trying to persuade anyone or play other games. I just offer it as a possibility. To me, it, to me, it, it's a it's a very beautiful possibility. A possibility of doors and gates um, being opened by this uh, journey of exploration, in this journey of exploration, through this journey of exploration, and that process itself becoming open-ended in terms of the ways of looking and the conceptual frameworks that open. Uh, The whole thing just opens up realms and worlds of possibility of experience (coughs) and conception. If I just share something um, about freedom from suffering and uh, equanimity, uh, something personal. Um, all this business, all, all this trajectory I've outlined, so well, what does that have to do with freedom from suffering? Um, and I just... <clears throat> uh, there's all these different possibilities of views and kind of uh, maturings of view are opening up further to another level, etc., if I just share for me, and it's only for me, you know, um, that personally, uh, it's not the emptiness of self, in other words, the insight or view encapsulated in the question, who dies? So I'm talking about my, my relationship with the possibility of dying, and the dying an early death, or dying soon. Um, it's not so much that, you know, some, you might have heard this question, who dies? Who dies? And, um, and that, that kind of question, the emptiness of self, that, that seems to capture. Um, or in the view that at death there is just um, the disbanding of the, this process of the aggregates. It, it, it kind of falls apart as a process, this process of the aggregates in time that, that kind of stuck together makes the self... Or the view that the process was all there was, um, uh, or is it is or was the self. Um, though it wasn't, it isn't for me. Uh, those kind of views that really make a difference and bring deep 
freedom and deep equanimity um, with respect to the possibility of, of dying soon, uh, dying relatively early death. Um, even less is it a reflection on impermanence, just the fact that we all die and that everything is impermanent, is born and dies. Nor is it, or was it particularly uh, the perception, the available perception for me of oneness with nature and oneness with the elements. I remember being struck uh, immediately after I got the prognosis. Um, was, I had a CT scan and the doctor said to me, you've got a tumour in your pancreas. And I had heard enough about pancreatic cancer to, to know kind of what that implied. <clears throat> and... Um, uh, and I remember coming back to Guy House, and it was summer, and sitting in the in the in the wall garden, and sort of reflecting on it, taking it in, digesting that news, and uh, looking around at the beauty around me, and having a possible perception, possible experience to be able to enter into that way of looking that just saw myself as one with nature and body at death dissolving back into nature like that, uh, becoming earth, becoming air, becoming water, <coughs> etc., and energy. And uh, it wasn't that view that was, it was available, and uh, it was helpful to a certain extent, but it wasn't really a view that brought um, a lot of deep freedom or equanimity or um, transformative power to it. Rather, and again, I'm just sharing for me, um, rather, uh, I suppose I could kind of list four insights that I think um, that that really were helpful uh, instead that kind of have over the last few years um, in relation to this possibility of dying and this news and this uh, very real possibility that I am confronted by and live with. Um, Four, four uh, insights, if you like, four, four ways of looking for perceptions. One is the insight into the unfabricated, um, excuse me, um, the, the sense, the perception of that um, unfabricated. But in a way, and this, this to me is important, in a way that includes a sense, a palpable sense of the mystery there, the mystical beauty and sacredness of it. In other words, it's not. It, again, it's something that's functioning in a way um, that that's saying something more than it's just that everything's empty, or it's more it's just this kind of beyond, or uh, it's it's got a soul element in in the mystery that I perceive there and sense there, the deep, um, uh, unfathomable mystery and 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 the beauty, the mystical beauty and sacredness of it. Um, that perception for me makes it makes a huge difference um, secondly the uh, related insight or view that uh, knows and perceives the emptiness of everything uh, of all phenomena of space of time past future and present and the now of consciousness awareness etc and again, it's not. It's not so that so I see the emptiness, and you realise nothing matters because it's all empty. It's not that nothing ma that 
that view of or that sense of nothing matters that's, that I feel is making the difference for me, the liberating difference. It's rather, um, it's it's this 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 realization, this insight view of the emptiness of all things, in a way that makes felt some unspeakable mystery, beauty and sacredness again. It's in the emptiness that there is this sense of this this indescribable mystery of everything, 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 and the whole of existence, and um, and that's palpable in that insight way of looking or sense of the emptiness of all things. It's not that, as I said, it's not that everything is empty, therefore everything is kind of worthless or it doesn't matter or um, it, 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 there's some element, there's some soul element, some element of mystical appreciation, resonance, beauty. That makes the difference for me. That's what I, when I connect to, that's what kind of cuts through everything. That's what opens it out. Um, third uh, insight or way of looking or perspective, perception, is, uh, and I've, I've described this earlier in uh, some point, I think, in, in the last talk, um, the sense, the, the, the perception of myself and my life and the things and events in in my life and in the world, um, the sense at times of of all of that as image, the imaginal perception of all that, the sensing with soul of myself, my life, and the things and events in it. So it's not a constant perception; it's something uh, I move in and out of. Um, and so this sensing with soul or imagining perceiving with all that is involved in that as we described in, in the first talk of this series all those elements and aspects of the imaginal um, including as I described in the last talk on uh, Dukkha and soul making including the sense in that when I sense my soul with soul there is the sense of the non-separateness from the divine of my personality and um And the sense of uh, in and through and as my personality, my individuation, my uniqueness and even my weirdness and my particularities as necessary expressions and fabrications of the divine's unfolding, of the soul-making of the Buddha nature, of the cosmic Buddha nature, of the whatever you want to call it, of God. There's this perception of that, as I described in one of those Dukkha and Soul-making uh, talks, part, parts. And that also, as I described there, there's a sense then of, of the time span of my life, whatever that turns out to be, the duration of my life, is itself an aspect of my soul. The time and, and soul are somehow not separate. And the time given to me or allotted to me, whatever that ends up being, is somehow an aspect of my soul. And my soul is not separate from the divine. And in that way, it's, 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 it, the soul is also, and what is happening, and these events, and the time, and all of it is perfect in that strangely indescribable way that I... Uh, alluded to in, in that talk. 
that kind of perception, that kind of way of looking, that kind of opening up of the sensing with soul, of, my, of myself, of my existence, of my life and the events and the story and the personalities, that makes a big difference, huge difference, in terms of uh, the, the, the relationship with death and the equanimity that comes with that, the sense of grace, gratitude, blessing, ease, peace. And lastly, um, the, again, related to imaginal perceiving or sensing the soul, is, is when I feel myself, um, so to speak, on track or devoted to my, um, uh, let's call it my, my soul duty or duties, um, which, as we've said, pointed out, they are imaginal perceptions. The perception of duty is part of the imaginal constellation. It's an imaginal perception, which means it's neither real nor unreal. My sense of what, what my sole duty is in life, or sole duties are in life, it's got that theatre element. It's neither real nor unreal. It's got that imaginal middle way. And yet when I feel myself on track, and devoted and plugged in to that constellation of duties, if you like, uh, that makes a big difference in relation to death. So, mm, I'm just sharing that. We could ask what insights, what ways of looking make a, a really radical difference uh, with respect to what matters most. What insights, what ways of looking? If we're opening up this question of awakening, what does it involve? What does it mean? What is achieved there? So what insights, what ways of looking make a really radical difference with respect to what matters most? So life, death, personhood, what matters most? You tell me, what matters most to you? And what insight, way, insights and ways of looking, etc., um, make a radical difference and give deep freedom, deep equanimity. So that's a question for you. But still, even that, you know, in, in relation to freedom and equanimity, I would still place that in an in an, in the even larger vision that I outlined that that trajectory and that whole uh, strand and, and the other strands that were involved. And I would I would place even that in a larger vision, and that's the vision of this um, possibility of a movement of awakening opening doors for us, opening gates of possibility, of perception, of, of, of the sense of being, the sense of existence, possibility of also action. And that opening of doors, opening of gates, um, is potentially infinite and open-ended. Open-ended. 